Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gong. And these are the Q Files. Before we dive into this episode, we have a favor to ask, friends. Take a moment to make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram. And if you use it, like the Q Files podcast on Facebook. Then, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We know it seems simple, but it helps the show reach new people. And since you're listening, you probably enjoy the Q Files as much as we enjoy making it. So thank you for taking the time to help us, and thank you for coming along on our adventures. I don't recall exactly why, but the other day I got to wondering if there had ever been historical evidence of people inhabiting Antarctica. It seemed unlikely, and the answer is likely no for those also wondering. But that thought led me to wonder about ghosts in Antarctica. What paranormal things are possible in a land that is a cold desert? Does the strange still happen if no one is there to observe it? Then, unprompted, a few days later, my brother sent me an article about haunted places in Antarctica. I took that as a sign, a synchronicity perhaps, that we should cover this. Antarctica is the fifth largest continent, larger than Europe and Australia. Sitting at the bottom of the Earth, it is one of the coldest, most desolate places. It has been described as so quiet that you can hear the blood flowing in your veins. It's also advertised as the most haunted place on the planet by cruise lines. And surprisingly, Antarctica's ghosts can indeed withstand these spooky mathematical calculations. While Antarctica technically has a permanent human population of zero, there are routinely thousands of scientists, researchers, and various other personnel from around the world on its frosty soil. Typically, an average of 3,000 people are living there at any given time. It's estimated that around 300 people have died there since its discovery, which means that if we assume one death equals one ghost, one in 10 of Antarctica's people are actually no longer among the living. It may not be a place many folks think of as a bastion of the paranormal, but if you dig through the snow and ice, you'll find stories of failed expeditions, snowbound tents, and fierce frostbite. Mixed with the ice flows, penguins, and icebergs are dramatic and otherworldly scenes, evoking the uncanny and always uncertain atmospheres typical of any good ghost story. Just over 100 years since the first modern person stepped foot on it, the spirits of the dead have entered the continent in the form of ghost towns and phantoms haunting isolated explorers. In the Western imagination, Antarctica has always been this beautifully strange place, located at the liminal edge of our maps, a place where there is one endless day of light and one endless day of dark, both six months long. It's the only continent whose land is without a creation myth because it never had an indigenous population. It's never had its own language, culture, history, or legends. It is a land of literal and proverbial emptiness, a canvas that its transient inhabitants can fill not only with dreams and ideas, 
but with nightmarish stories. Many ice-filled wildernesses have human-created stories of magical enchantment, exploration, and beating the odds. The poles of the Earth, the extreme far reaches, literally the ends of the Earth, are strange places where strange things could happen. Magical landscapes that become unearthly dreamscapes. Places of uncanny solitude that house elves and St. Nicholas and the abominable snowman. The unceasing ice sheets of our South Pole, however, safeguard hundreds of thousands of years of history, never forgetting because they're never melting. In turn, Antarctica also holds and refuses to release our deepest fears in its mile-thick layers of ice, beckoning us to explore everything that's hidden. It has become a strange place where strange things happen, a place where we are still discovering and inventing its history. Its modern history begins with its frozen landscape speculated into existence in 1775 by Captain James Cook. Cook's ships, HMS Resolution and Adventure, had crossed the Antarctic Circle in 1773 and 1774, and he had been within 75 miles of land when he was forced back due to the massive fields of ice. By 1775, still without luck at landing, he recorded in his journal a note that read, I firmly believe it, and it's more than probable that we have seen a part of it. Sealers were among the earliest to go closer to the Antarctic landmass, perhaps in the earlier part of the 19th century. The oldest known human remains in the Antarctic region is a skull, speculated to be dated from 1819 to 1825. It belonged to a young woman and was found on Yamana Beach in the South Shetland Islands. It is assumed that the young woman was part of a sealing expedition. Her skull was discovered in 1985. Throughout the 1800s, various nations, Russia, Britain, France, and United States, claimed to have found the lost continent. Some, like American John Davis, claimed to have even stepped foot on it. But there is no real evidence that he hadn't found just another Antarctic island. The first confirmed landing wouldn't come until 1895, when the Norwegian-Swedish whaling ship Antarctic reached Cape Adair. This history, like so much other history of indigenous peoples, ignores the Maori tale of voyager Huey Te Rangiora. The Maori are the indigenous Polynesian people of mainland New Zealand, and the tale goes something like this. Huey was sailing his vessel south in the early 7th century in search of new lands. Suddenly, something alien appeared on the horizon. Growing before him were enormous barren summits jutting out of the sea and into the sky. He saw unfamiliar shapes in the waves, tresses waving at the surface. Animals that dove to great depths, and seas of Pia, the Polynesian name for the white tuber called arrowroot. Ethnologist Stevenson Percy Smith was the first person to make this connection in 1899. Mr. Smith speculated that the rocks were likely icebergs, the wavy tresses, bull kelp, and the deep diving animals as sea lions or maybe walruses. But the most convincing evidence is the tale's term for the frozen ocean. Tite Aka Apia. Tai means sea, 
Uga means ice, and apia means in the manner of arrowroot. Arrowroot flesh, when scraped, looks very much like snow. So, from the perspective of Huey Terangiora, icebergs might have resembled mounds of powdered pia, and it's likely that the Maori discovered Antarctica 1,300 years before Westerners. Current research has uncovered even more evidence of the Maori travels in the Antarctic region. Even finding ovens and tools on sub-Antarctic islands, proving they had spent at least some time in the area, if not on the continent itself. Who knows what secrets the ice is keeping? Maori connections don't end in the 7th century, though. In 1840, a Maori sailor, Teatu, became the first New Zealander to sight the Antarctic coast, and throughout the 20th century, it was Maori sailors that often manned the harpoons for whaling expeditions. While we find this endlessly fascinating, both historically and in the mystery of it, I think we promise some spooky tales, and not just a history lesson. Abandoned towns where the continent's first dwellings built by man still survive. Buckling buildings and crumbling walls evoke a feeling of both fear and curiosity in humans. Known as angstlust in psychology, humans are both drawn and repulsed by places that are no longer populated by the people who once built them. Antarctica consists of a multitude of these abandoned places. One of the most famous and disturbingly well-preserved location is the camp built by Sir Robert Falcon Scott and his party on the north shore of Cape Evans in 1911. After their ship drifted away, the hut was inadvertently occupied by the Ross Sea Party under leadership of Sir Ernest Shackleton from 1915 to 1917. Nowadays, Scott's hut epitomizes a heroic age of failed Antarctic exploration. The actual bodies of the five members of Scott's party are still encased in the Antarctic ice. The remains of Evans and Oates, the first casualties, were never found. Scott, Bowers, and Wilson died later in their tents. The bodies are very likely to remain on the ice for several hundred more years, though it is also likely that one day they will leave the continent inside icebergs. Due to the dry climate and the freezing temperatures, the hut remains in remarkable state of preservation. It is a place where events are frozen in time, a place where past, present, and future mingle. Spatial isolation and even the absence of familiar patterns such as day and night, normally an important way of maintaining a sense of control, add to the factors of why humans perceive the camp as strange, uncanny, and, yes, haunted. People in extremists have often encountered the sense of a watchful and benevolent or helpful individual accompanying them through dangerous situations. John Geiger's The Third Man Factor, Surviving the Impossible, is a comprehensive overview of the topic collecting accounts from long-distance sailors, shipwreck survivors, mountaineers, miners, and polar explorers. The phenomenon is named for the experience of Ernest Shackleton and his two companions while crossing the mountainous interior of South Georgia Island in 1916. They were the only people alive who knew that their shipmates were waiting for rescue. Following the loss of their ship, Endurance, and the treacherous ice of the Weddell Sea, 
in their journey to find help at the whaling station across the mountain ranges. Involved scant rations, no sleep, crevices, giant ice ridges, steep drops, and a near total lack of equipment. Shackleton's account of this journey in his book South ends with a mysterious observation that, when I look back at those days, I have no doubt that Providence guided us. I know that during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that we were four, not three. This sensation was one he shared with his companions when they had reached safety. Each had independently experienced the same sense that they had been accompanied by an invisible companion. The story later made its way into T.S. Eliot's 1922 poem, The Wasteland. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead, up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you. The benevolent third man, which John Geiger dubs the savior presence, appears to be something distinct from our traditional understanding of ghosts. It appears in crisis situations and interacts with the observer, even if only to provide a sense of comfort. However, the Antarctic also contains stories of encounters with a less benevolent presence. This second type of encounter, again, doesn't fit neatly into the category of ghosts if by that we mean the spirit of a person who has died, and often at the place in question. Antarctica poses a bit of a conundrum on this front, as although it's certainly seen its share of deaths, its footprint of human occupation is far later and far sparser than most other places on the planet. This less benevolent story takes place on Sir Ranulph Finnis's Transglobe Expedition in 1980 at the foot of Rivingen Mountain, where four members set up base camp to wait out the Antarctic winter. The team's radio operator was the formidable Virginia Francis, or Lady Twizzleton Wycombe Fines, also known as Jenny, who spent countless hours in the radio hut over 50 meters from the team's main living quarters. She told her husband, there's something there and she spoke of an unsettling entity or presence which, on occasion, followed her when she left the hut. When another team flew in to dismantle the base, one newcomer described it as an empty hut with aura. I sealed it up as I knew I would not want to go back up there. Jenny had apparently scratched graffiti into its walls about the ghost of Rivingen. It said, why have you come to disturb me? After these many years, I will haunt and I will taunt you and drive you away. This same sense of presence was also described by men overwintering at the Argentine Antarctic base of Esperanza, and in similar terms. It was always felt in the most isolated structures, usually at night and amounting to a strong sensation of being observed, although others, troublingly, reported seeing a male figure. Worse, perhaps, Fines described his wife hearing things, crying in the darkness, and someone whispering indistinguishable words from close behind her. Shackleton's The Heart of the Antarctic 
opens with a teasing allusion to another type of polar supernatural encounter. He attributes the urge to go out into the void spaces of the world to the lure of little voices, the mysterious fascination of the unknown. The poem it refers to, The Lure of Little Voices by Robert W. Service, is even creepier still. Yes, they're wanting me. They're haunting me. The awful lonely places. They're whining and they're whimpering as if each had a soul. They're calling from the wilderness, the vast and godlike spaces, the stark and sullen solitudes that sentinel the pole. While there's never any acknowledgement that these little voices are real or anything other than figurative, they have parallels in two experiences described by Aspie Cherry Girard, one of the youngest members on Scott's tragic 1912 expedition to the South Pole. The setting for each experience was an expeditionary hut. These man-made structures were built over a hundred years ago and have been effectively frozen in time. Those who come across them describe having a powerful sense that the occupants have merely stepped out into the snow and will be back shortly. With books left open and provisions left half-eaten. This was Cherry Gerard's impression when coming across the abandoned Cape Royds hut, which he described as dismal. I expect to see people coming in through the door after I walk over the surrounding hills. Later that night, however, Sherry Gerard describes hearing voices. The whole place is very eerie. There is such a feeling of life about it. Not only do I feel it, but the others do also. Last night, after I turned in, I could have sworn that I heard people shouting to each other. I thought that I had only gotten an attack of nerves, but Campbell asked me if I had heard any shouting, for he had certainly done so. It must have been the seals calling to each other, but it certainly did sound most human. Well, it might have been the seals, or it might have been the stress and strain of an unusual environment. Sherry Garrard admitted that we are getting worked up. But towards the end of their time in the Antarctic, he once again experienced the same type of incident as they lay awake waiting in that haunted atmosphere for their companions to return. Last night, we had turned in about two hours when five or six knocks were hit on the little window above our heads. Someone lit a candle and we all rushed out, but there was no one there. It was nearest the approach to ghost work that I have ever heard. They put this incident down to a dog wagging its tail in its sleep, hitting the window. A very sensible explanation. The huts as haunted spaces is further reinforced by Sir Edmund Hillary's famous encounter at that same Cape Royds hut. The conqueror of Everest had been born three years after Shackleton's death, but recognized him immediately, saying, I remember when I first went into Shackleton's hut, and I'm not a person who really sees things very much, but I went inside the door, and when I opened the door, it's a rather sort of bare hut inside, but I distinctly saw Shackleton walking towards me and welcoming me, and then it all sort of flashed away, and he was gone. Antarctica contains another mysterious force accounts in which the landscape or the elements themselves appeared to be unfriendly. 
You might say this is unsurprising. After all, it is Antarctica. But many descriptions dwell on the idea that there was an animus or hostility directed specifically at explorers seeking to penetrate its mysteries. On Shackleton's 1908 push towards the pole over the Great Ice Barrier, he seemed to feel an almost spiritual sense of unease, saying, It is as though we were truly at the world's end and were bursting in on the birthplace of the clouds and the nesting home of the four winds. And one has a feeling that we mortals are being watched with a jealous eye by the forces of nature. This feeling grew until when they were forced to give up and turn back to save their own lives. Shackleton felt he was rebuffed by the landscape itself on the return journey. Falling into a hidden crevasse at the last moment, he felt that it seemed as though the glaciers were saying, there is the last touch of you. Don't you come up here again. The land itself being alive is a concept we've toyed with on the Q Files. More than once in episodes like Hinsdale House, where the house is alive, or the Lincoln Funeral Train, where we believe the universe gifted us the phenomenon of seeing the ghostly smoke plume of the train, not as smoke, but as clouds. On a continent where volcanoes are called Everest and Terror, and the so-called ghost mountains lie buried beneath its middle, ghosts have most certainly plenty of room to wander the ice. In a land so magical and mysterious, I have no doubt it could have thoughts and feelings of its own. So much land that we know so much about does too. Antarctica is a metaphorical landscape that exists most vividly in the mind. The continent, however, offers more than just a conveniently large space on the map and more than just a generically hostile setting. It signifies instead an instability of the margins of the world that humans are both drawn to and repelled from. It is a liminal place that elucidates how people and their imagination act and react in extreme environments. It's a repository for humans' deepest fears. We traditionally think of ghosts appearing during the night, at dark, with the temperature dropping and announcing their arrival. Temperature can hardly drop any further in Antarctica. But what is interesting is that Antarctic ghosts seem to appear most often in the Antarctic summer. 24 hours of complete daylight, the complete absence of darkness. Rather, it has been described as a white darkness, which is so much more unsettling to me. Antarctica is Earth's most well-lit haunted house. While Antarctica might be one of the most haunted places on Earth, and it is most certainly a magically weird place worthy of exploration, it's also a land that is being fully reshaped by humans. It's a place that consists of a multitude of new buildings, but also abandoned places. Explorers of before, and scientists now, are faced with the choice of either discarding a location and all its appertaining equipment, or trying to minimize the human influence on such a pristine environment as much as possible. Despite the efforts to introduce standard guidelines for waste disposal in the region, extreme weather conditions as well as infrastructure problems hinder a strict enforcement time and time again. The clear remnants of humans' earlier and current ventures make Antarctica, on the other hand, 
the first continent where man's first dwellings still survive. There's 34 historic sites containing over 8,000 inventoried artifacts. Their preservation should be considered of global importance. Antarctica is also the most extensive and far-flung wilderness on our planet, providing a site remote from civilization on the edge of established social conventions, and it's melting. Just this year, an East Antarctica ice sheet the size, listen to this, the size of New York City, or 460 square miles, collapsed due to the accelerated melting caused by the climate crisis. The collapse, captured by satellite images, marked the first time in human history that the frigid region had an ice shelf collapse. The Glenzer Conjure ice shelf has been there for thousands of years and will never be the same again. Though all hope is not lost. The continent is governed by the 1959 Antarctic Treaty, which specified that the continent be used exclusively for peaceful purposes and that all scientific research done on there would be made freely available. New Zealand, one of the first 12 signatories to the treaty, is in the midst of resetting its Antarctic research strategy. One section of the treaty, which came into effect in 1998, will most likely be up for review in 2048. And environmental protections such as the prohibition of mining could be revised or rejected by signatories. In other words, it's a good time to reframe what the continent's priorities should be. And part of that is building a case for future indigenous management of Antarctica. That's right. Researchers are urging that the Maori be given a larger say in the management of Antarctica. After all, they are likely Antarctica's indigenous people or at least the first to find it. As part of this ambitious proposal, Antarctica and its seas would be granted personhood, giving the natural formation the same rights as a human being, and perhaps proving Shackleton right that the land is alive after all. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend and share us on social media. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird. Stay curious. These are the Q-Files.